The Laura Murphy Show, episode 60. Welcome to The Laura Murphy Show, the podcast that analyzes financial markets from the perspective of Austrian economics and Nelson Nash's infinite banking concept. Listen and learn as your hosts, Robert Murphy and Carlos Lara, explain how you can be part of building the 10%. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Lara Murphy Show. I am one of your hosts, Bob Murphy. With me, as usual, is Carlos Lara. But also joining us today is a special guest who's made several appearances here on the podcast, Nelson Nash, discoverer and founder of the Infinite Banking Concept, or IBC. So, Nelson, uh, welcome, and we're, we're glad you could join us today. Thank you for the invitation. Now, folks, what we're talking about is, in a nutshell, the idea of having multiple policies or a system of whole life policies when you're implementing IBC. And the background here is that both in his book and when I hear Nelson talking to uh, members of the public or even financial professionals who are considering about embracing IBC as part of their business model, Nelson will often say things along the lines of, now you know that you know the way I look at this, it's not just one policy you're taking out, but a system of policies, right? And I thought I had a good idea of why Nelson was saying that, but then it occurred to me at one point, you know, maybe I don't have all the answers. Maybe I should ask Nelson and not just assume... And I did that, and his answer actually was something I hadn't heard of before. And so that's, I thought, hey, this will be the basis of a good Laura Murphy Show episode. And so we have Nelson here to tell us. So Nelson, can you give our listeners more of the the background as to what got your juices flowing and what motivated you to start thinking about this, not as just someone taking out one policy, but, but a system of policies? Well, a number of things actually came together, Bob, that uh, caused me to reach this conclusion. Uh, first of all, uh, it's the uh, basic understanding. When you, know, you get paid, you get paid either by electronics or a check, right, Bob? Exactly. What's the first thing you do with it, please? You go and you put it in your bank. Whose? Well, normal people put it in the, the commercial bank, not your bank. Uh-huh. And then uh, they write checks out the other side of it, right? Yep. But all, A-L-L, all of their money goes through somebody else's bank, right? Yes. Well, if you owned a banking system yourself, wouldn't you do all your business with you? Right. So what would logic tell you to do? To make it as, as big as possible? You would want to run all of your money through this system. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just an established fact. You can't do that. Life insurance companies won't write that much business on you. So you'll have to end up insuring everybody else you have an insurable interest in. But there were other things that came along, like many years ago when I was uh, fairly early in the business with Equitable, uh, my partner and I had a client who was in the contracting business, uh, Robbins and Morton. Uh, Todd Robbins was the founder of that business, and um, we uh, established the fact that uh, he needed $250,000 life insurance policy, which at that time was very significant in people's minds. 
But uh, Todd didn't want it in the form of one policy. He wanted it in the form of five policies. And so we had to ask him why did you want five different policies? And he says, well, I have uh, different uses for it as collateral for various business ventures that we have, and uh, that just makes it much more efficient. So uh, it was things like that that came along. Uh, there are probably two or three others that uh, would lend credence to that concept of having uh, multiplicity of policies. But uh, I certainly saw this in my own life big time that I'd already owned a, a number of life insurance policies when I put the concept together. But uh, when you consider what I was paying in premiums with what I was paying in interest uh, to the banking business in my real estate dealings, uh, it didn't make sense at all that uh, what I sh- I was being bled to death with uh, 23% interest uh, with the banks, whereas I could get money from life insurance policies that I owned at 5 6 and 8%. But uh, I didn't have anywhere near that much money going into the system. And so what I saw, I had to crank up lots of policies uh, to create a reservoir from which to borrow to pay off the snakes and dragons at the bank. And then later on, I could pay off the uh, policy loans and have income that uh, nothing else could duplicate out there. That was my strategy. And so I ended up insuring... uh, Several business partners, uh, come to think of it now, there's been five of them. Uh, but uh, also, uh, along this way, one of these uh, business partners in the real estate business died on me uh, at age 50 of a heart attack while sitting in the doctor's waiting room waiting to see him. He had a three-pack-a-day uh, appetite for cigarettes and 300-plus uh, cholesterol, but he didn't believe all those numbers, but he died anyway. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I didn't buy it for death benefit. I bought it uh, as a place to put money that I could borrow and pay off the, the banks. And uh, uh, this was just uh, a windfall is what it amounted to, that uh, I had uh, borrowed from that policy Oh, $57,000, I believe it was, uh, in paying off banks when he died. Well, when he died, Bob, that $57,000 debt disappeared. And the $207,000 left over came to me tax-free, canceled out a lot of mistakes I'd made in life before. Now, that wouldn't have happened had I not thought of the necessity of uh, multiplicity of uh, policies. Okay, so great. You you raised several issues there. So a few of them, or two of them at least, are things that that I had thought all along when you know when I was trying to understand why is Nelson stressing the system. Right. So one thing being, when you first start out, you just don't have the ability, the, the financial means, no. to to put as much into this approach as you would want. And so clearly, over time, you know, as you as you expand you're necessarily going to have to have multiple policies just because you can't on day one start from scratch and get it going. Another issue being if you have, you know, if you're taking out policies on yourself, on other people, relatives, on business owners, obviously those are going to be different policies because they're insuring different people. Sure. But the, I want to just have you elaborate a little bit on the thing you said originally, because this is one that I don't, to my under, to my knowledge, isn't you haven't written up, is that you were saying even for someone who from day one had the ability of 
you know, he knew how much he wanted to have in a, in a particular policy available for banking purposes, let's say, but he said, rather than me getting one big policy of 250 grand, let me get five smaller policies of 50K each. So you said it kind of quickly. Can you just, for our listeners who might've missed it, can you just explain exactly what was this person doing and, and why did he think it was going to be more advantageous for him to have it spread out over multiple policies, even though you know it wasn't an issue of he couldn't afford to fund the big policy. He could do it if he wanted to, sure. but given his particular situation, he thought it would make more sense to split it up. Well, I don't know how much you know about the contracting business, but a contractor who just has one project going and that's all uh, has lost his mind. <laughs> when you get through with that, now you got to go find another one. So if you got any sense at all, you're going to have a bunch of projects going on. <laughs> sure. And so Todd saw that uh, if he had a multiplicity of policies there instead of one big one, that uh, he could uh, use them for each of the projects that might come along. We don't know what it's going to be, but uh, the uh, companies that like, a contracting company, they've signed on and won a, a contract. But look, the guy who wants this particular thing built, he wants to make sure it gets done. And so, uh, you know, a business could go under. They have done so. And so the uh, name of the game is that you've got to have bonding out there uh, from some source to make sure that the project gets done. So it's the same principles that uh, banks do not lend you money. I don't know how many people really understand that. What banks do is they collateralize. Uh, I tell this story uh, very clearly uh, in uh, bank notes uh, back about two, three months ago, I believe it was, that uh, they don't lend you money, that they collateralize. You've got to put up something out there that equals what they're going to lend you. Sure. Right. And which is, yeah, the the old adage that banks only lend you money if you don't need it kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, Carlos, can you, I know a lot of our listeners are going to vaguely understand what Nelson's getting at, but maybe we'll partly to bring you in the conversation, but also because you have all these decades of, you know, advising and consulting with business owners. Can you maybe just elaborate a bit on this idea of a construction firm, you know, needing to be bonded and what you know? What what's that general idea? And then specifically, what Nelson's client realized in terms of wait, if I got these these whole life policies sitting around, and how that can kind of help with that process. Well, one of the things that Nelson just said <laughs> made me think of an incident that happened a long, long time ago, and working with a business owner that was uh, had gotten into some serious financial trouble, and um, I probably had been working with him almost over a year. And I, I had actually gotten to know the banker quite well. In other words, I mean, we could we could talk and we could joke and laugh, that sort of thing. And well, this business owner, business owner had no credit. I mean, he was in that that kind of a situation. And uh, I was trying to pull on the banker's good side because I'd gotten to know him, and and I wanted him to extend credit to. To my client, you know, and I remember very distinctly the banker saying, says, Carlos, come on now. Don't ask me for money if you don't have collateral. Give me collateral and I'll extend you some money, you know. And so uh, when Nelson was talking about 
that piece right there, it sort of reminded me of, uh, of that particular incident. And, and, and you, you chimed in too by saying that bankers lend you money, but it's almost like you, why, why should you get it from them? Cause they want you to give something to them first. Yeah. But what Nelson's talking about on the bonding aspect of it, when it comes to contracting jobs, uh, you've got the contractor, you've got the individual that, you know, is going to receive this, uh, this project when it's completed. But as Nelson says, you've got a lot of uncertainties that can occur between the time that this contractor wins the bid and the completed project. And so, you know, this individual is going to want some sort of collateral. And so, uh, typically in the contracting business, um, contractors go out and they will, seek bonding companies that will come in between, you know, the, those, those contracting jobs to assure, you know, the, the recipient of the completed project that if something goes wrong, there'll be some, somebody there that will, you know, deal with the, with, 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 with the shortfall. And so, uh, Nelson's business partner was, was thinking very, very clearly, uh, when he said, you know, I've got all these projects going on and rather than take one large policy, give me, give me five for 50,000 a piece. And, uh, he's using it as a form of liquidity collateral, uh, to, you know, to back up the projects that he's, he's going to undertake. Yes. The the reason I like this is it, you know, it's not so much that somebody who was just thinking in terms of one big policy was, was wrong and misunderstood the idea of, well, gee, you know, if I have a major expense come up, I'll turn to this thing. I'll take out a policy loan if I want to buy a piece of property or, you know, my daughter's getting married. It's just we're pointing out another benefit of doing IBC, which is that people in the financial sector, you know, well understand that the cash value available in a whole life policy is a very liquid asset. And so it's it's not that Nelson's client had to take out $250,000 worth of policy loans, but just be able to show someone I have this ready and available should the need arise. And for various reasons, it was just easier to say, if you know, you had five different projects going on with different clients, hiring this person for, you know, his services as a contractor to be able to have these things distinctly set up, whereas it'd be more awkward if he had $250,000 all in one big policy to be able to divvy it up and apportion it to serve as the, as the, for the bonding purposes of, of those five different projects. Um, so again, very interesting. Nelson, can you maybe talk a little bit about a similar theme, but a different application? Because another major reason, of course, you might want to have more than one policy is if you're taking them out on your children or grandchildren, intending at some point to bequeath it to them as a method of you know teaching responsibility and financial management, but also to just literally, like legally speaking, how do I transfer wealth from myself to future generations? And so you, of course, have a, a whole approach that you use that involves obviously more than one policy. So do you want to speak a little bit about that for people who haven't read your book? Mm, sure, absolutely. Uh, we have three children, 10 grandchildren, uh, eight great-grandchildren, and a ninth one on the way uh, due to be uh, showing up here in mid-November. And uh, every time a uh, grandchild was born, uh, Mary and I would crank up a $2,000 annual premium on a high-premium, low-death benefit policy like IBC uh, Teachings is uh, advocating. 
Uh, now, my children uh, match that, so every grandchild has a $4,000 premium since birth. Now, uh, there's one exception to that, but we don't have time to go into that, uh, but uh, it was because of uh, a health problem. But we brought that one up to par when the person became insurable. Now, when my great-grandchildren came along, same sort of deal. I'd buy life insurance on the great and uh, the uh, parents would do the same sort of thing. Well, all of my uh, grandchildren now, are, well, I think the youngest one is 25 or so. Well, if you go to my uh, page 71 through 74 in Becoming Your Own Banker, I'm giving an uh, example there of uh, grandparents buying life insurance on the newborn uh, child and uh, $2,000 premium and paying for 22 years and then letting dividends pay the premium from that point on. Well, uh, turning that mechanism over to a grandchild, if they uh, use it the way I teach and if they'll uh, continue to pay premiums, uh, they won't ever see a bank in their life. And that's a totally different way of living. Uh, it's it's something that very few folks really understand because they've never thought of it this way. They've never experienced this. Uh, this is something you got to experience to really understand. Now, uh, then I, you know, had life insurance on um, the business partners and so forth. And also, this is a good way to give the things charitably. Uh, Foundation for Economic Education owns a very small policy on me. Uh Southside Baptist Church owns a significant policy on Mary, and we haven't been members there in about 35 years. But it's all going to the Lord's work. Who cares? <laughs> Great. So that's uh, another way of looking at it. And so, and yeah, and as, as we think we've talked about also, that's a great way not only just to legally transfer ownership in an advantageous fashion, but also, as you're mentioning, if the if the kid knows that's coming, you can start educating them ahead of time. They're going to be much more likely to pay attention when you're explaining the intricacies of policy loans and whatnot. Sure. When they know, oh, two more years, I'm going to I'm going to get control of this thing. So they're they're much more likely to pay attention. Yeah, well, we have given away all the policies on our grandchildren to the, their parents. Same sort of thing with uh, the the great grandchildren. Uh, just as soon as a great grandchild is born uh, and buy life insurance on it. Uh, within a year, I've given that policy away. I only own two small policies, two policies rather, on great grandchildren, and that will be transferred to, to the uh, uh, the mother, or as the case may be, within the, this month. So, okay, good. I don't own anything except four small policies on me. I have the ultimate estate planning. I don't owe anything. <laughs> right. I, I don't great. own anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. So, Carlos, with the time we have remaining, I thought this would be a good opportunity. We're sitting here talking about all the advantages of a business owner having these policies and perhaps multiple ones, to, you know, especially if somebody who needs to often present collateral on different projects. And so, and also, of course, our latest book that the three of us co-wrote along with help from David Stearns on The Case for IBC, available at thecaseforibc.com. Remember that, folks. Uh we're writing it almost, you know, from the perspective of a business owner trying to show this is how cash flow management works. And look, if you're a business owner in particular, you really want to check this out. So I think a, a frequent consideration, what people naturally intuitively think right out of the shoot is, oh, well, wait a minute. If I have the business own the policy, 
then the, the premium payments are, can be deductible, business expenses, and they, they automatically go there. But actually, Carlos, I know when you're advising real-world clients who are business owners, you almost always say, no, you really don't want to do it that way. You want to have the you as the individual person own the policy, and then if the business needs to borrow money rather than turning to the commercial bank, it borrows money from you, you know, that you take out as a policy loan, and then you lend money to your own business. And even though that might seem kind of complicated, there's there's various reasons. So I know you probably don't have time to get into the full story right here, but can you just explain for the business owner listeners out there the the basics as to why you, generally speaking, you would say if you're going to do IBC, the the individual should be the owner of the policy rather than the the business entity. Well, while Carlos is working on that, let me point out something, Bob. The idea of the business being able to deduct the premium. Yep. I don't know that that's possible. If that were true, then the death benefit would be taxable. Uh, do you want that? You certainly don't want that, no. <laughs> okay. All right. So the idea of something being deductible there is an illusion that needs to be eradicated. But okay, I made my point. Go ahead, Carlos. <laughs> well, uh, a couple of things that you're pointing out, Nelson, um, uh, as I hear you speak, uh, I don't know if you folks caught this when he said this, but he said he had a, a business partner that died. And so uh, the point there is that Nelson was the beneficiary, uh, received a income tax-free death benefit as a tremendous windfall. And uh, so there's there's benefits in, um, in insuring as many people that you have an insurable interest in as, po- as possible. And uh, this is one of the, the things that I've learned late in life is that I didn't know anything about is just this multi-dimensional aspects of dividend paying whole life. I mean, here we've, we've been talking about, you know, transferring your wealth to the next generation. We're talking about, you know, providing it as a sort of a bonding element. Uh, and then, of course, the the the, the real uh, nugget, of course, is being able to use it uh, in, in the form of banking, you know, these are, these are tremendous, uh, uh, flexible, uh, things you can do with the, with this tremendous instrument. And of course, the idea that Nelson came up with in using policies in this way. But the very short answer is that no, you, you, the individual should always own the policy, not the entity. It gets pretty complicated very quickly if you, if you make the corporation or the LLC owner of the policy. Um, there could be tax consequences there. Uh, and it just gets really muddled and, and complex. So, uh, as Nelson has always emphasized, uh, becoming your own banker is you. You are the banker. If you want to be the banker to your business, that's absolutely fine. And you can, you can negotiate with your own business in that way, you know, keep making sure you do all your accounting right. But you're the banker in, in the case. And so you should own the policy. Yeah. And also, Nelson, I think you've stressed also that you want to, your vision is to bring banking back to the you and me level. And so that also ties in here that it's even when you're, even if it's, if it's the business you yourself are the sole owner of still, you want to be the the banker, the one controlling the banking function, not the business entity. Yeah. Let me uh, amplify that just a little bit. Uh, 
I know a dentist out in uh, Arizona who's caught on to this big time, and uh, he runs everything through this system. Now, he has a captive customer, his uh, dental uh, business and so forth. And so everything uh, it, that they need in the business uh, is done through loans uh, from him to the business, the business entity. Okay. Now, he has a captive customer there that he can charge the living daylights out of, uh, and he uses uh, credit cards, uh, high interest rates as a uh, guide. He says, if uh, Visa is going to charge me 17% interest, uh, I can charge do the same thing. I can charge my corporation 17%. Now, he's going to get taxed on the difference between the, the amount of money the interest rate he's paying the insurance company and the amount that he's getting from his entity. That's going to be taxable. Yeah, but uh, that's just way he's getting income for himself personally. Uh, this is a different way of thinking, that's all. Now, let me really amplify it big time. In my seminars, I tell about uh, CSX Railroad. They have 35,000 employees. Now, if they really understood infinite banking concepts, they would buy high-priced life insurance on all 35,000 employees. Now, do you realize that uh, within a couple of years, they'd have a ton of money out there available, and they need to buy some locomotives? And so they call the agent and say, hey, send me $50 million. We want to buy some locomotives. Well, uh, the uh, agent uh, gets the money from them, gives them an amortization table for the interest for a time period uh, that they agree upon and say charges them, um, uh, say, uh, 10% when the insurance company is only charging two, whatever. Well, it, it logic tells you that things going to get better no matter what. But what is not understood is that, um, do you know of a town that's got 35,000 population, Bob? Well, Nacogdoches, Texas does. Okay. Now, I've been to Nacogdoches, Texas many times, and uh, they have a newspaper. And uh, from time to time, I check the uh, newspaper, and there's always an obituary column. You know, in a town of uh, 35,000 people, somebody dies every week. Now, do you realize if uh, CSX Railroad did what I just said, do you know they'd have a death benefit every week tax-free? Does that boggle your mind or not? Well, yeah, yeah, and it it, it really does just emphasize how uh, it, it is funny. I think I've told this in other contexts that when you first present these ideas to people, they'll say, oh, this is that's just a scam for, you know, hillbilly types who don't know. And you say, well, no, actually, in the late 80s, so many rich people were taking advantage of this with the single premium policies that the, you know, I or the Congress changed the tax law to try to put a break on that. And then, as you're mentioning now, that some companies do, you know, take out large life insurance policies on their employees. And then the, the objection switches to, well, yeah, that's just something that you know, rich people can do or big companies, but it's not for me. So it is funny how, you know, at the same time, this is supposed to be some silly thing and nobody would do this. And, oh yeah, that's just for, for rich, you know, it, it would work for big companies or rich people. But <laughs> so it, it always seems like it doesn't work for the person if they, if they're committed to not wanting to see it. Well, I think we're actually up on the uh, butting up against our time constraints here. So let me just mention, folks, obviously, we we raised a lot of issues in this podcast. There's all sorts of particulars that might affect your situation. 
And so remember, go ahead and when you're ready to talk to somebody with your particular numbers and just to get a, get an idea of, hey, how would this look in my situation? What you want to do is go to infinitebanking.org slash finder to get somebody who's been a graduate of the program we developed to train financial professionals in the proper design and implementation of IBC uh, for the individual household or business owner. Because again, as you can see, there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of particulars and nuances to make sure you, you know, you implement the thing properly going from the abstract. Oh, wow, this is a great idea to how do I actually uh, put it in, in practice in my life? Also, if you haven't checked it out, get our latest book, the case for IBC available at wait for it, the case for IBC.com. And then more generally, uh, clearly, if you haven't read becoming your own banker, Nelson's original book that started this whole thing, you can get that, go to infinitebanking.org and you'll be able to see the complete library of IBC related literature there. I guess before we sign off here, Nelson, I'll say that I'm going to see you at the Mises Institute as we're recording this. It's going to happen. I guess you're coming down on Saturday. Yeah, looking forward to it very much. Great. I am as well. And we will see all of you folks listening to the podcast next time. This has been episode 60. We'll put links here to all the stuff that I brought up in case you want to go find them. So thanks for listening, everybody. And we will see you next time. You've just finished another episode of The Laura Murphy Show. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to do your part in building the 10%. The Laura Murphy Show is provided with the understanding that the staff and contributors of lauramurphy.com are not here and engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult your own professional tax, legal, or financial advisor. Thank you.